0: To help me explore the issues of financial risk management, and in particular to show how financial risks are managed in the business world, I am delighted to be joined by Neil Henfrey, the Group Treasurer of Boots, the United Kingdom's leading health and beauty retailer, and Paul Outridge, the Head of Treasury at De La Rue, the world's largest commercial security printer and papermaker. Managing company risks involves an active relationship with the banking sector, And here to represent that sector, I'm pleased to have Ho Chan of the international banking group ABN AMRO. Neil, can I ask you to talk about the problems which you think exist with with pension funds and how they pose a a
1: significant additional risk for companies like yourselves? Yes, Martin. Boots, like many companies in the UK, has got a defined benefit scheme. It's fairly closed to new members, but nevertheless it's got liabilities of £3.5 at the last count, which is broadly the same as the market cap of the company, and therefore it's a very substantial size of liability there. Now, obviously, there's assets matching those liabilities to the extent they can, and Boots is in the very fortunate position of having a broadly a fully funded scheme. So it's got about £3.5 of assets as well. So you might say, so what's the problem? Well, the problem is that the the size of the liabilities depend on things like the long-term discount rates, inflation rate prospective salary increases, and probably most important of all, actuarial assessment of uh, longevity, mortality of the, uh, the, the people in the fund. And so the, the size of those liabilities moves up and down with the markets as discount rates moves, and every time actuaries decide that people live an extra five years, it adds more to the liabilities. Now, the assets themselves, of course, depending on what they are, might act in a very different way. Boots itself has got 85% of its funds in bonds and 15% of its funds in equities and properties. Now, obviously, they don't necessarily move in the same way as the liabilities do. So what you find is that when you measure both the assets and the liabilities on a market base, which is what you're required to do for accounting purposes these days, you can quite very substantial volatility in the difference between the two. And let's imagine that you've got a deficit of £200 how are you going to make that up and how quickly are you going to make that up? And so you can find that uh, all of a sudden that you've got a very quick demand from the trustees to make substantial additional contributions to the fund that you weren't expecting. So it it eventually flows through to a, a, a funding liquidity issue. However, even despite that, During the whole process of this, because it's a market valuation, it's now on balance sheet, banks look at the the deficit, investors look at the deficit, rating agencies look at the deficit and treat the deficit as being debt-like. And so it can impact you quite substantially in your credit rating, your your share price and your, your relationships with banks if you've got substantial deficits, which many companies do have.
2: That's right. I mean, adding to what Neil
1: said, I think one of the
2: important areas that is now coming through is how... Treasury departments can help the trustees to manage that deficit And in terms of derivatives, which we're talking about. The problem is the mismatch in the funding gaps. For example, the assets may well be in bonds, but the, the maturity of the bonds won't necessarily match the profile of the maturity for the pensioners or prospective pensioners in the scheme. And this is one area in which, for example, interest rate swaps has certainly been talked about as one mechanism in which you can help to to smooth the difference in the the exposure between the assets and the liabilities. We
0: know that with the introduction of international financial reporting standards IFRS, the position in respect of pension fund liabilities has to be uh, reported, but also understand uh, Paul that IFRS as we know it has had an impact on other areas of your risk management
2: business. Certainly, for us at Delarue, yes that's right is thirty two and thirty nine for example which deal with financial derivatives and financial instruments have a significant effect on us in terms of not necessarily the way in which we manage our exposures but certainly the way in which we're required to report them and also to the level of documentation that we have to provide. The key element of is thirty nine simply relates to how you can match your forward contracts or your financial derivatives that you've taken out to hedge your underlying currency exposure. Traditionally, providing the level of forward contracts you had in place matched your level of exposure, then that was sufficient within the accounting rules in order to effectively to be able to combine the two and simply, effectively, when the forward contracts matured, you could then be able to match those off against your sales or your purchases within the profit and loss account. What has happened now is that in order to achieve the same treatment and IFRS, there's a whole new regime called hedge accounting that has become now part of this exposure document. And as a result of that, to achieve hedge accounting, there are very strict rules that you have to manage in order to be able to achieve the same result and effectively put all to your forward contract revaluations, which now have to be marked to market on a monthly basis, to your reserves rather than taking them to PL every month. The level of documentation required is quite onerous and certainly for major international groups, it's a key decision in terms of managing your exposure, whether you want to manage that volatility to your PL or not. For De La Rue, the decision was made that we do need to manage that because mm. the potential volatility exposure of a sudden changes in exchange rates is such that it could produce a significant effect in our reported results, which, not as a result of our actual economic hedging that we've undertaken, but simply as a result of an accounting standard, has created this volatility, and that to us was unacceptable.
0: So in effect, you're saying that changes to uh, accounting standards are, in a sense... Uh, Leading to certain business inefficiencies when it comes to your hedging and business activities in Treasury?
2: Certainly in the sense that we have, as a policy, decided we did not want to change the business rationale for hedging. Mm. We still have underlying exposures in currencies. We still wanted to maintain that level of hedging on an economic basis. What it has impinged on certainly is the level of administration that now goes into maintaining the level of uh, exposure management that we do currently. And that has put a considerable onus not just on Treasury departments but also on the subsidiaries throughout the group in order to comply with these, the new accounting standards.
0: What impact have all these high-profile Treasury-related disasters had on the way in which large banks undertake business?
3: I think it's, um, for the bank itself, I think it's, it's made us improve our own control systems and made us focus much more on, on operational risk than, than perhaps we, we had previously. When you think that the, the all-first debacle, for example, was really about loss of controls, um, about a single person who, who managed to, to run up large positions which seemed to be undetected for, for some time. But within the bank, what it's really meant is, is that we've undertaken a, a huge exercise really to identify all our operational risks and also try to construct a database really of, of where we've, we've had operational risks in the past within the bank itself. But in fact, not just the, the actual losses, but we also need, of course, to try to capture the near misses also, which uh, is a bit more difficult because people don't really like uh, to admit that they, they always made a loss. So that's one area. Certainly it's made us focus much more on on operational risk, I think, and and that's been been a great impact. The the impact of of Enron, for example, one of the impacts certainly is Sarbanes-Oxling, which which has actually created a, a lot more work for us. Paul's mentioned the onerous... Tasks that have to be undertaken for um, IS 39. Well, Sarbanes-Oxley is, is also hugely under us on, on our control systems, on our auditing, on the reports we have to produce internally to make sure we're complying with it. So I, I think what's really happened, in a sense, with these these uh, disasters is much more regulation and essentially much more work for us on, on keeping records and, and showing that we're, we're doing the right thing. Paul and Neil, has that been the experience in the corporate world?
1: At Boots, we've been very lucky that we've not uh, had to deal with Sarbanes-Oxley because we're not US listed. However, even in the UK, the introduction of the operational financial review and forward-looking risk statements in the annual report and prospectors and things like that means that we've had to introduce a far more formal risk management process across not just Treasury but the whole of the business operations and that's been introduced over the last couple of years. So there's a much more rigorous, holistic risk process nowadays, of which Treasury is actually a very small part, because many of our risks are quite mitigated away, whereas your core business risks you can't mitigate away, and they're the ones that you actually need to understand on the board more than the many of the Treasury risks which um, we've got rid of.
2: That's right, and I think certainly now part of the annual accounts require formal statements on policy mm-hmm. in terms of how you address the risk. As, you said, as we've said, Neil said, not just financial risk, but also insurance risk, et cetera, business operational risk. And certainly the whole corporate governance has moved. Even De La does not have to, I'm pleased to say, report under Sarbanes-Oxley either. But the whole level of reporting under corporate governance is now filling quite a few pages now of everybody's annual reports. And it's an area that, as Horse said, I think will more and more there will be additional requirements in which we need to comply in future as we go forward as more accounting standards and potentially more disasters happen in which everybody, if you like, needs to make sure and demonstrate that they have the systems in place to mitigate those risks.
0: But this is also setting a serious educational challenge for executive and non-executive directors who don't necessarily come from a financial background. How are companies dealing with this?
2: Well, certainly from our side, and we do have formal training courses for directors when they are appointed, they now actually have a series of um, lectures and informal discussions, so they are actually made fully aware of just what the risk of being a company director for a publicly quoted company is, because in circumstances they are liable along with the company. And therefore, it is a personal liability as well as a
1: corporate liability. We would have a similar kind of thing at Boots.
3: Well, I think one of the things I can say from the um, from the difficulties, perhaps, that, that some of the corporates are facing, is actually this is a, a good opportunity for banks. Of course, it's, it's a chance for us to to move in, perhaps, and. Uh, Help advise on on some of the regulations that are required, or to advise on how to to manage your hedging system. So it's more it is more efficient, and you comply with IS 39. Or indeed, as as Neil mentioned on on the pension funding side, of course we are suppliers of the financial instruments that he mentioned: um, inflation links, swaps, you know, other assets for investment, and so on. Of course,
0: I'd like to finish by focusing on one. one Curious, but particular foreign exchange-related risk, which I was uh, discussing with Paul just before the making of this programme. Uh, De prints banknotes. And uh, recently we've seen the emergence of the euro and the eurozone in recent years. And who knows in the uh, future, many more countries may be joining the eurozone. And as a printer of banknotes, I just wonder whether this development in the forex market was good business
2: news or bad business news. Well, in the sense of Certainly the spread of the euro market, to a certain extent it is, from a treasury perspective, it is actually quite good because obviously it helps to mitigate the risks in the foreign exchange market. From a business perspective, there are both opportunities and perhaps um, disadvantages. With regard to principal Western European countries, most countries... Print their own banknotes. As the largest private printer of banknotes, we have about approximately 50% of the private market, but 90% of the banknote market is actually printed by state governments. So, therefore, particularly for the Eurozone, most countries will actually print their own notes. And therefore, there isn't an opportunity in that particular area necessarily for us. Although, together with the change, obviously, in the changeover in currency, it means that there needs to be new machines both for handling and counting notes and that is an area of opportunity for us in which obviously we make sure we're well placed.
0: And would you be well placed when Britain goes into the euro?
2: Yes I think there's sufficient lead time on that to allow everybody I think to be able to manage that.
0: From the Open University. For more information go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.